Hey, 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 closet busters and bold move makers. It is time once again for Life Uncloset. So I want you to gather around because it is time once again to kick down those closet doors of your life. We're here to escape our BS, explore our fears, and elevate our self-expression. I'm your host, Rick Clemens. I'm the bold move expert and that coming out guy who's going to take you to the party, the pulpit, the wake, and back to the party of living your life uncloset. So come on along with me and grab hold of yourself and get ready to step out, step up, and step into facing your fears, making your bold moves, and living life without apologies. Now let's get to the show. I just want you to imagine for a moment that you have a child, a child who the things they hear on the playgrounds make them feel less than. Could it be that they're fat? Could it be that they have a handicap? Or could it be something as simple as the color of their skin or who they find themselves attracted to? Today, we're going to dive deep into some messages of the playground. And we've been here before, but before we dive into that, I just want to welcome all of you to Life Uncloseted. I'm your host, Rick Clemens, and you know this is where we share all kinds of coming out stories from all walks of life. But because it is pride season, I wanted to have a good buddy of mine who is actually paving some new ground and some new ways in his world with an amazing book that he has coming out that years ago, he and I used to meet in West Hollywood and talk about different things we were doing. And he talked about this letter he had written and I don't want to give away too much because I want the whole story to unfold here from where he's been a few years ago, being on the podcast to where he is now. And the journey this book has now taken that it's, out. It's published. You can get a handle on it. You can have it in your own hands. He's my buddy, Chris Tompkins. And I'm so, so, so excited. First of all, man, to reconnect with you. It's been a while since we've chatted, but to see this, what started out as a letter and an article in Huffington Post is now turned into something that's really going to have some impact. So welcome to the show, buddy. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me, Rick. It's good to be back. Good to see you. It's been been a long time, so thank it you. It has. And um, I remember when you told me about this letter many years ago. I, I don't even know. It's probably been four or five years ago. We had these conversations, and we had gotten to know each other through a couple other spiritual centers and stuff in L.A. And um, who would have thunk? I mean, I even remember you and I having conversation because you asked me about publishing books and how I did it and all this sort of stuff. But um it's been an interesting journey and there's more going on for you in your life. But um, so raising LGBTQ allies from a gay man who doesn't even have kids. Let's kind of start there. That's got to right. be a big step in and of itself, right? Yeah, man? yeah, yeah, it is. And I think that kind of what I was sharing with you before, I, I, was, I was speaking with um, a, another gay man who's kind of, you know, really, he's a well-known kind of uh spiritual coach, therapist, he does a podcast and he, he, he was, he, he's very spiritual. And he kind of mentioned when we were having a conversation about my book, he's like, I just kind of want to like reflect the fact that you're, you're a gay man who's, who wrote a parenting book for mostly non-gay parents. And, and I just kind of, that was the first time I guess I had, I had heard it kind of put that way to me before. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really speaks to you know, the consciousness that shift that is happening on the planet that has happened, that a lot of parents and families are really um, 
you know, they're, they're really interested in having conversations and, and more willing to listen to communities that maybe have been marginalized um, in the past. And so I feel really grateful that, um, you know, I have something that could be a benefit to families um, because this book really is, I mean, how I even thought about this before I even set out to write the book is that, because that was in the back of my mind, like I don't have children, like how am I going to write a parenting book? But the thing of it is, Rick, is that I was a kid. <laughs> so I know what it's like to be a child and to have parents. And mm -hmm. although I don't know what it's like to have children myself, I am an uncle and I have five nieces and nephews that I have been in their lives. Like I was in the delivery room for a few, you know, some of them. So, right. um, you know, and I teach social emotional learning and I've taught for the past six years and worked with kids of all backgrounds. So this is kind of a culmination of my own experience as a child, knowing I was gay when I was six years old and not receiving the um, attunement from my, mm -hmm. my caregivers. Um, and then uncovering what that created in my life as an adult, um, the messages, I call them the messages from the playground. And then also my experience of just working with kids, knowing kids, a lot of my friends, you know, from college have kids and just kind of picking up the piece, like connect, kind of connecting the dots. Yeah, truly connecting the dots. And, and I do find this interesting. So before Chris and I turned on the recording for this, we're having, well, we're catching up number one, but then talking about the past year. And now here we are 2021 pride season and, it's interesting how the universe kind of guides when things are going to happen. And you use the term already, you know, consciousness of where we are as a planet and as a society. And I, I'm so excited that this book is coming out kind of quote unquote at the tail end of COVID or at least where we're got, starting to tame the beast. So to speak. Right, right. Because I do believe the last year has been a lot of, for whatever side of the aisles and everything you're on, it's been a bringing some consciousness to the planet yeah, and really absolutely. being able to receive messages. And I remember in 2000, probably 2014, 15, somewhere along the way is when I started my speaking journey. Mm -hmm. And we had this great concept when I was going through a program that I was involved in, like Rick should be, Rick should be that speaker who his big conversation is, everybody's coming out of the closet. You know, everybody's got closets. And the more we thought about it, we're like, don't think society's quite ready for that yet, you right, know? Right. And now you hear that term coming out of this or coming out of that. It's almost like it's the, it is the metaphor. And right. I think you are in a really beautiful space, you know, that the book is out in a time where, whether it be from, you know, COVID or George Floyd or, you know, Breonna Taylor or any of these things, you know, the Asian Americans who are being attacked, that there is a level of consciousness that says this marginalization, it's got to stop and it's got to start being healed right. from the time somebody comes out of the womb. Right, right. Absolutely. I, everything you said is, is spot on. And I really, I, I absolutely believe that as well. And I remember what you're saying right now kind of makes me think about, I remember when I was giving 
my inner, I, I, when I was giving my TEDx talk, when I submitted an application, I, right. I, I had to interview. And so I was interviewing before a panelist of people and they're asking me questions about my idea, you know, worth spreading. And I remember one of the panelists asked me, why do you want your message, your idea to be specifically for the LGBTQ community? Because my, my TEDx talk was about um, anti-LGBTQ bias um, right. and familial, familial homophobia. And, and I told him, I told him that the LGBT advocacy work that I do is very much my heart work. Right. Like I very yeah. much feel like it's my soul kind of like, that's a whole nother conversation, but um, I do believe that that's connected to like my soul's work. And I told him that when parents can have open conversations with their children about one topic, it creates space to help them have more conversations about other topics that are important, including racism, including addiction, including um, all of the things that children today are impacted by. Not even necessarily because of their own identity, but because they, we live in a diverse world. And right. so I believe that it's really important for parents. It starts at the home. Mm -hmm. And so these conversations, I think, whether it's about gender, sexuality, um, race, um, everything that we're experiencing right now in the country, just as far as racism and how to be anti-racist, like those require, that requires a concerted effort and those, and, and requires conversations. And so I told the, the guy in my interview, this was back in 2017, um, that my hope is that once you start to have these conversations, it creates a, a it opens a door to have more vulnerable conversations between the caregiver and the child. Um, and that's really what I hope that, you know, so it's raising LGBTQ allies and the subtitle is a parent's guide to changing the messages from the playground. It's so powerful. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about this because as we look at what is going on in our world, I have had more people in the last year in the other part of my coaching practice who have been called just the same way. They're like, I was going to be speaking on this. And those who listen to my podcast know that I coach speakers a lot. And they were, here's the path they were going down. And now it's like, no, I've got to speak on this. My heart says, this is where I've, I'm being called to. And it takes a dedication, number one, to know that what you're going to go speak on right to even this conversation we're having today is hopefully going to have some impact with people and go, okay, if we don't have these conversations, we will never have these conversations. Right. There is no perfect time to start. Let's just start. Right. Right. And I get it. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I know what it's like to, you know, ha I have nieces and nephews. I know, you know, kids ask questions and <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll ask things at very inopportune times. Um, right. And, and so I think that yeah, this Uncle is Chris, why were you dancing on top of that float in the parade? I don't understand. You know? Yeah. Or, you know, I remember, you know, in all seriousness, I remember kind of going back to my TEDx talk. Cause I remember after I gave my TEDx talk, um, a friend of mine who from college sent me a message on Facebook, um, cause he had watched my TEDx talk and he said that my talk reminded him of his, I think four or five year old son, they were at a store. And he lived in like Midwest, some state in the Midwest. And they were at a store and his son 
asked him, pointed to someone and said, dad, why does that person have darker skin than us? And it made him realize the importance of having conversations about differences because children will learn, they pick up from their surroundings. And those are the messages from the playground. The messages from the playground is a metaphor that I use to describe the messages that we take on consciously and subconsciously from just virtue of growing up in a dominant, you know, we're all raised in, in this dominant kind of culture society with these dominant messages that we we take on consciously and subconsciously and so it takes a concerted effort for us to dismantle systems of oppression by identifying those messages Um, and it starts again you know i believe and that that's what my book hopefully can help inspire is by having open and honest conversations um, within the family it's interesting that you say that because i remember my daughters (laughs) And this was when my parents lived in Northern California and they, they, we, we, they got to go see them quite frequently. We'd pop them on a plane in Southern California and they'd fly up to Sacramento and spend the weekend with grandpa and grandma or a few days and stuff. And, and my mom is, she's one of those um, self-deprecating people mm-hmm. just, you know, oh, you know, well, I'm so stupid, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, I'm not very bright when it comes to these sort of things. Right. And I've just learned to live with it. Now, part of that is from her own interesting oppression from being with somebody who's very much a domineering narcissist. But now that that's a whole nother conversation, but it's so interesting that this messages thing, you're bringing it up. When I sat there once and had my youngest daughter say, so is grandma really stupid? And I'm like, what do you mean? And she goes, well, grandma always says she's really stupid and she's not very bright. Mm. Such a Mm. interesting little thing. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, my daughter wasn't that young, but she was probably six or seven Mm -hmm. that that's what she picked up on. Right. Right. And it's such a good example of you do not realize how the littlest thing is what a child is going to remember. Right. And then as my daughter grew and she went through some of her own stuff and, and not seeing herself as worthy and a lot of different things. I remember the one time she said, well, you know, I'm just so stupid, just like grandma. Mm. And I thought, wow, Mm -hmm. that got embedded very, very, very young, even though we had talked about it. Sure. So we continued to talk about it. And, you know, I, I, we don't have to talk about it a whole lot now, but I'm, I'm really conscious of what people say. Right. Especially right. in our community, right? <laughs> because yeah. I know you and I have both witnessed this in a huge way with our own LGBTQ community where yeah. we've been so beaten down by you can't sure. be this, you shouldn't do this, God's going to hate you, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And as much as people will come out and start to be themselves, there's the flip side of that, that when we see the addiction and the, you know, overt, you know, hooking up constantly and all this sort of stuff it's a cry for just see me. Right. Just love yeah. me. Just yeah. care for me. Right. And so much of those messages came from, as you say, from the playground, whether that playground's the literal playground in school or the little literal playground of who we are as a society. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what my metaphor of for playground is, is it's, it's a metaphor for society at large. Um, and everything you said is very much, you know, I, I, I I, I very much position this book, um, you know, you, you kind of know this probably from your own experience of writing a book, but before you write a book, you really 
identify the specific person that you're writing this book for, you know, they want you to create an avatar. They meaning like it's suggested, you know, to just really get specific of who this book is for. And so I really got inside of who I did want this book to be for. And as much as this book is for parents, like we said earlier, mostly non-gay families, um, non-LGBTQ families, it's also very much for LGBTQ people themselves. Um, Because I talk about increased rates of, of substance use. Um, I talk about, so one of my chapters is, is shame, about mm-hmm. shame. And then one of my chapters, the very next one is about trauma. And so I really think it's important because I think a lot of the conversations for, in my, in my own life that I've had for the past, you know, however many years have been very much about shame and, um, the effects of shame and how that, you know, I mean, I bartended, I worked in a bar for 11 years, you know, I know what it's like, I I saw a lot. And what I realized, that's really what was one of the like inspirations for this book, in addition to the letter that I wrote to my family, Mm -hmm. was understanding trauma. Because I used to look at increased rates of substance use within the LGBTQ community through, through the lens of shame. Yep. But it wasn't until I learned more about trauma that I realized there is so much unhealed trauma that we are carrying around. Um, a, a lot of us, I mean, just by, I think, being a human on a planet, sure, <laughs> um, absolutely. you know, a lot of us experience that. But one of the things I really try to highlight and, and talk about is heteronormativity and microaggressions that occur on a daily basis. And that includes, that includes not being able to it's, it's so important for a child to be able to mirror, to have mirror, what's called mirroring um, when they're younger. And so for a child who's LGBTQ, they don't experience mirroring often no. as much as um, you know, other children who maybe aren't LGBTQ themselves. And so that creates, there's like this fracture. Right. And that fracture is trauma. And if it's not, if it's not addressed or healed, then that's where you, you know, you fill it with, with things that are, that are not very supportive. And I don't know that most people equate trauma at the level that you're talking about. Most people see trauma as something that's big. It's horrid. It happened. Yeah. Yet a simple example of trauma would be, and, and, and so I'm now going to be, I think I'm going to be 57 this year. So you can tell I'm getting older. Um, and I came out, so it's 2021 and I came out in 1999. And one of the things that my parents said to me back then, it was my dad and then my mom kind of backed it up. You don't realize how much damage you're going to do to your daughters. You're going to turn them into gay themselves. Right, right. Yeah. It still is right there. Right. And even when I say those words, it's right there. Right. Yeah. Now, some people would say, well, that's not traumatic. Oh, yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Because the moment those words got uttered as a parent, one of the things that I cherish the most is taking care of my kids. Right. So now I'm suddenly traumatized by the thought that, oh, my gosh, by me being who I am, I've just now hurt my kids. Right. Which was the furthest thing from the truth. I mean, there was challenges. Yes. Sure. But 
the biggest trauma out of all of that is probably the thing that I still struggle with from time to time is my youngest daughter. She has no recollection of mom and dad ever living together. None whatsoever. Because we split when she was nine months old. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she has only grown up in a, a split household and B a hetero combined shared parenting arrangement with a gay family. Right. Yeah. So there's so much trauma that people like try to like, Ooh, well, let's just brush this under the rug, so to speak. And I don't think most people wrap their head around. It is the simplest thing that can be said that can be some of the deepest trauma you'll ever experience. Right. Right. Yes. And that that's a really perfect example of what I, in the book talk about the difference between what's called big T trauma and little T trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I really make that distinction. Um, if anyone of your listeners, if anyone out there has um, studied or looked at, you know, at trauma research, um, they really do distinguish between big T and little T trauma. And mm -hmm. even though big T trauma sounds big T, it's bigger. Um, one of the things that is very like known in the field of trauma work is to never compare traumas. So you would never say, oh, well, your trauma is big T, my trauma is little T. So that means that you, you know, experience something worse. The effects of the traumas, especially if little T trauma is ongoing and pervasive, such as heteronormativity or homophobia, that's, that's just as damaging as a big tree, a big T traumatic event. Um, and so one of the things I did want to share really quickly too, is that, um, so I'm in school studying and one of my classes um, I'm taking this quarter is about addiction and what we're learning in addiction and recovery is that wherever there's addiction, there's trauma. And that's not to say that everyone who experienced a trauma will be addicted, but wherever there is addiction, there is trauma. And the thing of it is about trauma is that most people think what I've, what I've learned in this class that I think is so valuable and that I talk about in my book is that the, the traumatic, so like, let's look at bowling or let's look at that um, example that you shared with your parents, your parents saying that to you. So it's not even so much what they said to you that was the big, like, or, or the, tra the trauma thing. Right. It's, it's not being able to talk to anyone about that. Yep. And so like for a kid who experiences bullying or who, you know, what someone said something about them, it's, it's not even that thing that was said to them. I mean, that, that's, that's also damaging. Yes. Yes. And, and where the trauma, what creates the hole that the trauma is, is tr the person tries to fill with often substances or something else is going home and not being able to tell anyone about that. Mm -hmm. And so for, I think about all the kids out there, like myself as an example, you know, I was in the closet. I knew I was gay when I was six, but I didn't want to tell anyone because of the messages that I heard, you know, growing right. up about what it meant to be gay. And so whenever I was bullied and called a fag, I didn't want to tell anyone because then that meant that, oh, well, why are they calling you a fag? Right. So I just didn't tell anyone. So those, tr those were traumas that I'd go home and that hole got bigger and bigger and bigger until I'm an adult and then I'm trying to fill it with something. It is interesting to see how this works. And I've been called out a couple of times. <clears throat> Not so much has somebody said, oh, well, then you don't really, then that really wasn't as traumatic as you wanted to make it out to be. But I have told the story numerous times that I was sexually 
quote, sexually abused when I was younger. But I quickly follow that up with, but it was also the moment that I realized, oh, this all makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because I had always had this fascination with men, particularly their penis, their genitals, all that. And like, oh, that's, wow. So then suddenly this thing happens Mm -hmm. and it happened again and it happened again. And I'm like, it all made sense to me. That doesn't mean it wasn't traumatic. Right. Yes. And I always say it still wasn't right. No matter how I package it up, I'm not saying it wasn't right. I'm saying it may help me make sense. But then to your point, Chris, who could I talk to about this? Right. Right. Because my family knew about it. So they quote unquote took care of it, so to speak. Obviously they didn't take care of it enough that it didn't happen again, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't say, well, but it's okay. Right. Because that was not acceptable. Right. And, uh, and when people don't grab hold of this, and I know part of what you're trying to do with this book, just one piece of it, when they don't grab hold of, if these sort of conversations don't happen, then the next generation is going to do the same thing again. Right. right. And again. Right. And right. again, and especially as we look at, you know, some people are like, oh, you know, the gay thing, it's, it's, it's all good. I'm like, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the trans thing is for sure not good. Right. You right. know? Yeah. Yes. Is it different? You know, I, I'm going back to when, you know, you and I um, were at Cal State Long Beach and you did your TEDx and I had spoke at Cal State numerous times by that point. Mm-hmm. Yes. Much different. Mm-hmm. Even than what it is now, even today, it's even much different, but by no means is this a done and over subject? Right. No. And I think people miss the point of in their world, it may seem like that, but it's kind of the same thing as, well, but I'm not a racist. Right. Really? Right. Right. I have caught myself in the last year going, wait, maybe I need to think about this. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything that you're saying, I mean, you've said a lot that I could, that I would love to just, you know, kind of speak to is that, you know, if, a fish doesn't know that it's swimming in water. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know that we live. It's that's what I talk about in my book is that, you know, I, I really want to distinguish between, you know, we think of when we think of when I say homophobia or when I say something, the transphobia, we think of like this, like, like a big T trauma, like a, you right. know, someone calling, a, you know, beating someone up, bullet, whatever. But what I really talk about is, you know, I have a chapter that's called benign neglect which means, you know, not communicating and still communicating. Right. And so all of the conversations that we don't have about particular groups of people, that is homophobic. Yes. And it's not homophobia, homophobic in the way that we think of homophobic, homophobia, because I actually talk about that in my book. You know, even the word homophobia can be, can be misleading because a phobia is actually, I mean, I'm in school right now learning about diagnosing mental illness and, a phobia is a diagnosable thing it's in the DSM five. Like if you have certain criteria, then you can be diagnosed with a specific phobia. Yep. So homophobia isn't, it's not like someone comes in a room and, and has meets criteria to be diagnosed with homophobia. It's, it's, it's misguided, distorted beliefs about a person. Yep. And that's what I'm talking about. And so those are the messages. And if I could just really go back, you know, to the point you made or, you know, what you brought up about sexual abuse. And that's a really, you know, serious subject. And I appreciate you, you know, speaking openly about that because that, you know, takes away the shame. Um, 
out of this conversation. And I address this in the book because one of the things that I think is really tricky when we talk about abuse is that our bodies are meant to experience pleasure and joy. And so the really like the really damaging thing about a child who has experienced sexual abuse is that their body, like their body is meant for pleasure. So there's a part of that experience that, that felt good. And so then the thinking gets distorted about, well, why does it feel good? That yes. must mean something bad about me. I must, I must be perverted or I must be bad. And, and so I think what's really important when we have parents have conversations with kids about gender sexuality is that it's not about talking about something with the child before they're old enough. It's about having conversations about things about every single child has a gender, every single child has a sexual orientation. So it's about making these things sacred yes. because I, I, what I, one of the chapters in my book, I talk about this is that for a lot of LGBTQ youth who know, like I was six when I first kind of knew that I was gay. And for someone who is, who feels shame about their identity, they're going to be more quiet. They're going to be more reserved. They're going to be the, the, the kids on the playground, maybe that, that isn't as outgoing. And so someone who is a predator is going to notice who in that group is maybe the one who's not going to speak up. And so the purpose of having open and honest conversations with children is that we can equip them with a healthy sense of identity so that they don't feel shame and that a perpetrator who, you know, anyone who knows about perpetrators is they methodically and seek out vulnerable children. That's why they're called perpetrators because they're actually their predators are actually seeking out the weak of, of not that you were weak, but they're seeking something out that they yep. can, that they can maybe think that they could get away with. And it's such a fine line because there is this, for me, there was this, well, this makes sense. And this was fun. And at, and at one point, I was awakened enough that all I wanted to do was spend time with that person because spending time with that person was fun. Spending time with that person got me attention. And it's so interesting to now see that I've, you know, that I've evolved, so to speak, that I can see how that played out in so many ways in other relationships through my life. Right. Because yeah. I've always sought out men in my life that gave me attention. Right. And when I couldn't get that attention from them that I wanted, then the guilt and the shame would set in or the complete, I can't stand them. Right. There's a whole nother flip. And that's sure. <laughs> you and I could do this conversation. Like we could do a whole nother, whole nother show just on this sort of stuff. But yeah, it's powerful to me to hear you talk about this, Chris, and to know that yes, this book is very focused on LGBTQ allies, but I think the powerful thing, and hopefully as it's now released and people are starting to purchase it and get it in their beautiful, warm hands that they will start to see this may be around this particular community, so to speak, 
but it's very transferable to any any marginalized community. Yes, yes. Thank you for saying that, Rick. And if I could just really quickly say, because exactly to what your point is right now, is that in my family right now, um, you know, my mom and my siblings, they've, they've, they've been along this journey of me writing this book. So they're kind of familiar with what I, you know, what I'm talking about in the book. And my mom, I was having a conversation with her last week. And one of my family members in my family right now is she, she's a young uh, child. And she's going through some challenges. And my mom, a lot of our conversations, my mom has been telling me, she's like, Chris, like everything that you're, that you've said in this, in your book, like is, can apply to what she's going through because it's about having open and honest conversations. And a lot of the things that she's been experiencing, no one's wanted to talk about. And it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, sexuality or gender, you know, being LGBTQ, but it's about something that's impacting her life that that's what I'm hoping that, you know, cross out LGBTQ. And it's really about, you know, having convert, like someone asked me, like, if you can summarize your, like, you know, the elevator pitch, if I was in an right. elevator, like, what's your book about? Like, it's really like, have open and honest conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not a one-time conversation kind of to your point about your daughter. It's like, you know, these are ongoing conversations because the more that we talk about these things, the less shameful they are. And then we, we, we fill that crack from the trauma and then, you know, we, we raise allies. Um, Mm -hmm. And if I could just lastly say that one of the, one of the things that I, I write in the first chapter of the book is that I want readers to consider, I call them two truths. The first is that the LGBTQ community has come a long way. We've done, we've made tremendous progress. Um, And the second is that there's still more work to do. And so that's kind of the, the invitation is as we have these conversations um, is that both can exist. And, and all can exist too. Right. And that's the thing. And, and what I, when I was reading through what you'd sent me for this chat today, one of the things that really stuck out to me other than, and I, and I've known you long enough to, you know, I can see so much of this anyway, but one of the things that really stuck out to me was and since you kind of went there, if I was going to say what Chris's book is about, it's about having open conversations that create a more peaceful planet. Period. Right. Yeah. Now insert LGBTQ, insert black lives, insert Asian AAIP, whatever it is, insert transgender. It's about having these conversations, whether it's the sandbox on the playground in kindergarten on up through the bigger sandbox and playground that we all live in called planet earth. And I'm so excited that this is out, that something that you wrote many years ago turned into something that I hope will have huge impact, my friend. So, Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And just a lot to add on to what you said is that those conversations, they, they have to begin within yes. ourselves first. And so this isn't just about, you know, okay, let's have conversations with kids. Like we have to have these conversations within ourselves. Absolutely. And I think as gay men who've come out of the closet, I think both of us can attest to neither one of us could have made it out of the closet until we had the conversation within ourselves first. Absolutely. And this is such a, a groundwork and a foundation that if people will allow themselves to embrace these ideas and take it inward first. Mm-hmm. 
it makes it so much easier when you get ready to take it outward right. to the next conversation. Right. So hundred percent. So I'm very excited for you, man. And I'm going to offer this up to any of the listeners who would like to take advantage of this, that if you want to email me at rick at rickclemens.com, the first two listeners that email me and say, I'd like a copy of Chris's book, I will send you a copy on my own. Wow. So, wow. Um, I just like to get it to at least two people. And wow. Thank you, Rick. All thank I ask is when people get that gift from me and if you're able to do so, if the book has impact in your own way, maybe pass along two copies of the book to somebody else that you think could benefit from it. So that this becomes just a global little movement. Wow. That's amazing. So, Yay. Thank you. You're welcome, man. So thanks awesome. again, Chris, for being yeah, here and being you. who you are on the planet and thank um, you, wishing you all the best of luck with this, man. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rick. Hey, 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 Life Uncloseted family. Another episode of Life Uncloseted has come to an end and it is time for all of us to sashay away and go face our fears, make those bold moves and stand up to living our life without apology. But before you do, I've got a favor to ask of you. Would you hop over to iTunes or Spotify or Podbean or wherever it is that you're listening to this and just give us a little bit of love if you like what we're doing here at Life Uncloseted. Here's what it does. It helps other people find the show. It helps other people get to know what we're all about. And you just might help change a life. In fact, if you really want to change a life, we'd love it if you just ask a friend to take a listen and see what they think. So that's it. Love you all deeply. I'm Rick Clemens, the host of Life Uncloseted. And never stop stepping out, stepping up, and stepping in to living your life uncloseted.